we are in the book of Luke, uh, as you know. We are in the middle of chapter 6, actually on verse 37, uh, which is where we left off last week. So go ahead and start turning to Luke chapter 6, verse 37. Jesus in the midst of a long teaching, um, at least recorded for us or written down for us, uh, which we called the Sermon on the Plain, as opposed to the Sermon on the Mount, uh, because you'll notice in chapter 6, verse 17, it says, And he came down with them, and he stood on a level place. He had been up on a mountain there, or a high place, and then he had come down and stood on a level place, and there he began to teach. Now, many of the things that he teaches in this chapter are similar to Matthew chapter 5-7, through 7, which is what we call the Sermon on the Mount, but not necessarily the exact same uh, study that he was giving in those places. So we've been moving through, and we've been looking at uh, the so-called Beatitudes, attitudes you should be having if you're going to be a follower of mine. We looked at uh, the converse of those, or the opposite of those. So he said, blessed are those who are poor. Blessed are those who are hungry. Notice that's verse 20. Blessed are those uh, who weep now, and so on. And then notice down at 24, he said, but woe to you who are rich. Woe to you who are full now. Woe to you who laugh now. And we spent some time considering that, so you can go back and take a look at that. Um, but what it means to be a follower or a disciple of Christ. And remember, Jesus wasn't really that concerned about numbers, uh, the amounts of people that were gathering around him or whatever it may be. And, and typically when large crowds came, Jesus would see that as an opportunity to really say something that would challenge them and bring them to a place almost where he would be saying to them, are you really sure you want to follow me? Because this is what it's going to mean. And... Uh, Unfortunately, many people did walk away and say, no, I'm not interested in that. Uh, But there were those that stayed, and Jesus continued to teach them what it means to be a disciple. Now, we're going to move in today to verse 37, and this is a verse that is commonly quoted. Typically, the scenario would be something like this. Uh, Somebody just did something wrong, something significantly wrong, uh, that got me to the point or somebody else to the point where we were really bothered by that. And so somebody confronts you, on that particular behavior. And they say, you shouldn't do that. And the response is, these verses, verse 37, judge not, lest you be judged. That's often how you you hear it used, or many times how it is used. And uh, I'll read the whole section to you, and then we'll go back and we'll talk about it. I do think the way that that person is using it is not what the Word of God intends. So let's take a look. It says, judge not, and you will not be judged. Condemn not, and you will not be condemned. Forgive and you will be forgiven. Give, and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, together, running over, will be put into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. And then we'll stop there. So Jesus said, begins, and he says, judge not. A little bit later he says, condemn not. Uh, two words, uh, very similar in their meaning. They both have the idea of judging, condemning, um, evaluating, and so on. And, and Jesus here tells us that we shouldn't be doing that. Uh, as the scenario that I quoted earlier to is a person saying, don't say anything about my behavior. Leave me alone. I can do whatever I want. So is that what Jesus is saying? I don't think so. If you look just one page over or a little bit later in the same chapter there, notice in verse 41 where it talks about uh, seeing a brother has something in his eye and you go and you help him with that particular thing in his eye. And then a little bit later on, and we'll go to this later, 
But a little later it says, Brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when you yourself have a log in it. Hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take out the speck that is in your brother's eye. So as I said, we're going to come to it. But there's an example where you're helping somebody with a fault or a sin that they are in. Um, The word that is used in verse 37, where it says, judge not, it's a word which actually means to not determine another person's motives. So, here I am, and, you know, I see a person come driving up to church in a fancy car. And I say, man, they're so proud. They're so arrogant. They come in that fancy car so they can show everybody the kind of money they have, or something like that. Well, I've judged now their motives. What I don't know is that somebody gave them that particular car, and it was actually cheaper for them to drive that car than the one they were still paying off, and so that's why they brought that particular car. You see how we can go wrong? We don't necessarily know everything. And so we want to be careful as followers of Christ that we're not judging other people's motives. He goes on and he says, condemn not, and you will not be condemned. Now that word condemned there has to do with determining a sentence. So I've judged another person's motives and I've cast the judgment. I've cast the particular sentence here. But again, I don't, my motives can be, or my understanding of their motives can be wrong. And so I can't necessarily cast condemnation or I certainly cannot determine the sentence that that person should be under based on my faulty understanding of why they are doing what they are doing. So again, we need to be careful and leave that to, to the Lord. So if it is pride, we leave it to the Lord and let the Lord do a work in that person's heart. Whatever it may be, we don't have to be the executioner, the judge. He also says a little bit later on, he says, forgive and you will be forgiven. Now, if we take this from the perspective, I really want to go to heaven, I want to be forgiven of my sins, in order to get to heaven and be forgiven of my sins, I must forgive other people. If I have an unforgiving spirit, I'm in danger of not going to heaven. Well, we know theologically from our study of other places in the scripture that that's not how it teaches that heaven is gained, so to speak. It's not on anything that we do, even something as nice as forgiving other people. There are two different types, if you will, of forgiveness. One of those, we could call it, uh, we'll call judicial forgiveness. And that is where a penalty has been met. So let's say you owe some money or whatever here, a fine of sorts, and or a prison sentence you're going to have to pay, and you've done that. Well, then the penalty has been met, and you go before the judge again, and he says, okay, you're free to go. Uh, you've been forgiven of your particular crime. That's judicial forgiveness. A penalty has been met. For us, as followers of Christ, that would relate to our relationship with God and our forgiveness um, as far as eternity is concerned. Another type of forgiveness is what's called parental forgiveness. And parental forgiveness doesn't really have to do with penalty having been met or not, but it has to do with relationship having been restored or not. And so an idea that you might consider is, and I don't know if some of you have kids or not, you, you might know this, uh, my kids are getting a little bit older, so we don't have to do this as much as we used to, but there used to be a time where we would say, go, to, go sit in your room for a little while, or I think when some of you were younger, go sit in the corner, you know, and you had to go sit in the corner with a pointy hat on your head or something like that, facing the wall. So we'd say, you know, go sit in your room, and then our son or our daughter or whatever, they would come back, and they would talk to them and say, so what did you do wrong? And they would explain what they did wrong, and if they're at it, I didn't do anything wrong! 
go sit in your room a little bit longer. And then they go sit back in the room. If they come back, and my, one of my sons was really good at, what is it you want me to say? You know, so I can get out of my room. You know, um, so he never said that out loud, but you could tell that's what he was thinking. Um, you know, but when they come back and they say, like, yeah, I was wrong. I shouldn't have kicked him in the head or something like that. You're like, exactly. Now you understand. Come back into the rest of the family. We're playing a board game. You can play with us. That's the idea of relationship being restored again here. And so if we want to have a right relationship with God, an unhindered fellowship, we're in the, playing the board game, so to speak, with him, and we're harboring an unforgiving, bitter spirit, then we can't expect to have that sort of a relationship with God. There's going to be something hindering um, that. And so if we want to be forgiven, we forgive. He says in verse 38, he says, Give, and it will be given to you, good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over. And the idea there of giving is giving generously and giving liberally, not holding back and and these sorts of things. Now, we need to be very careful with this because there are many, I think, today that suggest uh, that we give in order to get. The idea, you want to be rich, you want to have a nice car, you want to have this, you want to have that, well, then you better start sowing your seeds and you better start giving and all these sorts of things. Um, The Lord does seem to bless us but not to the point necessarily of great wealth, but just to the point of provision, miraculous provision. You say, wow, Lord, you're just so faithful, you know, and uh, I'm just so grateful. I may not have a gazillion dollars, but I have everything I need, and you always provide, and thank you, Lord. Um, so we, we want to be careful that our motive in giving isn't so that we can get in return, um, but rather it's so that we can be a blessing, and we can be used by the Lord. So he said, give, it'll be given to you, good measure, press down, uh, shaken together, running over. Uh, when I was a kid, I grew up working on a farm, and we would have uh, big bushel baskets for, uh, I guess it was corn seed of some sort. I don't know what it was. I was a little kid. I just working. That's all I did. But they would want to fill the bushel baskets as much as possible. So they would pour it in there initially, and you're like, it's filled. And the farmer said, it's not filled yet. Shake it a little bit. And you shake it, and it's like half full. Like, That's crazy. You know, and then he would do it again, and he would just keep shaking it until eventually you shake it and nothing goes down anymore, and it starts to overflow onto the floor there of the barn. He said, now it's filled, and he takes it. And that's what the Lord is describing here. Uh, Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over the sides into your lap, for with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. I don't think this is just financial as well. I think as you give of yourself to people, uh, and you become a servant as the Lord has became a servant uh, of, for us as well, but as you become a servant in that way as well, you'll find that the Lord really blesses you. And you'll find that people uh, give back to you in the same measure, graciously, liberally, and generally, uh, generously. So, three or four there, qualities. Again, these are all teachings on what it means to be a disciple of Christ. He goes on in verse 39, he says, He also told them a parable. Can a blind man lead a blind man? Answer, not really. You know what I mean? The blind man needs a little bit of help, uh, especially when when he's in uncertain terrain. Will they not both fall into a pit? He says, a disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone, when he is fully trained, will be like his teacher. All right, we'll stop there for a second. People are only going to go as far people that are being led are only going to go as far as their teacher can take them. 
And so if the teacher's not going in that particular way, and, and I think this applies, you know, for moms or dads or children, you know, they're going to go as far as we go, that sort of a thing, uh, and so on. And so if you are a person who has influence other, over other people, then I would encourage you, invest into your own relationship with the Lord. In, in the, specifically, that's what he's talking about here. But invest in your own relationship with the Lord. Make sure that you're in a right place with the Lord so that the people that are, so to speak, under you, following you or whatever, can also attain to the place you're going. I like what Josh Barber shared on a Sunday morning. Uh, I think he was just with the leadership team, the, the worship team. Uh, but he said, look, people are only, only going to go as far as you have gone. And so the sincerity of relationship with the Lord uh, is what he's referring to. Do you have a hand up here? Oh, or an itch? Well, I was going to ask a question. So what do you do when, you know, relative or friend or... You know, somebody comes to you and says, your Bible says, judge not lest you not lest you be judged. I mean, what do you say? You're right. <laughs> I mean, the judge in the way that you talked about it is different than what goes on when, like, you're confronting a family member or a friend or... Yeah. I think I would explain that, look, I don't think that doesn't mean that we can... Because we are told in the scripture to judge a tree by its fruit, for instance, and we're told to, um, but we're told to do it in a very careful way. That we first search out our own hearts and we make sure that we're in the right place. We come with humility and all that. But ultimately, we as Christians can't look at something that's wrong and say that it's right just because we don't want to judge. I agree. Yeah. Like abortion. Uh-huh. Oh, you can't judge me because of abortion. That's right there. Yeah, there are certain things that are wrong, right? Right. And the scripture is clear that there are certain things that are wrong. And so we don't want to go to the side of where we don't say anything. We just become a wishy-washy people. And what you do is for you and what I do is for me. Right. right that makes perfect sense. Yeah. I think there's something. To me, it just seems like, look, you're right. I'm not the judge. You know, God is the judge. And it's not you I'm judging. But there are certain things that God says are right or wrong. And there are certain things that... It's the thing that's being judged. Right. Because mm-hmm. it's wrong. It's not. And ultimately, it's not your standard that's judging them either. Right. You're saying, I don't know. I'm not saying it's wrong. God's saying it's wrong. You're taking them to the Word. Yeah. Good. All right. So then he says, verse 41. I'm not sure if I read it, but I'll read it again. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own? How can you say to your brother, brother, let me take out the speck that is in your eye when you yourself do not see the log that is in your own eye? You're a hypocrite. First, take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. So I like how this is in this section here, and I guess that's because Jesus did too. That's why he put it in his lesson plan. Um, But I think there's valuable um, information here in that it is not wrong to help a brother that is in sin, uh, it's not wrong necessarily to go and tell that brother, look, man, you got a, a piece of dust in your eye. I can help you get that out. I can make you aware that that is there. But it would be foolish of me to do so when I myself am living in sin. All right, now, all of us have sin. You know, so a person's going to come back and say, well, what, are you perfect? Like, no, I know I'm not perfect, you know, this idea. But I am trying to be. I'm trying to be right with the Lord. I'm seeking the Lord 
on these things, and I'm trying to be humble in these areas here. And I know that God took me through this similar situation. I had a speck in my eye. Let me tell you, that speck was a log in my eye, but God was gracious, and he removed it from me. All right, so first we search out our own hearts, and we make, that we're, make sure that we're in the right place. Some people like to point out other people's faults. It makes them feel pretty good about themselves. I guess I'm not so bad, because I'm not doing that, and I'm not doing that, and so on. So we want to make sure that we're in the right place when we go and confront people. Okay? All right. Verse 43. He says, For no good tree bears bare fruit, fruit, nor again does a bad tree bear good fruit. That makes sense, everybody? Sure. Each tree is known by its fruit. For figs are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor are grapes picked from a bramble bush. The good person, out of the good treasure of his heart, produces good. And the evil person, out of his evil treasure, produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. So, this idea of judging a tree by its fruit. One of the best ways to know sort of a person, you know, their motives, where they're coming from, is just to kind of pull back and take some time and watch. You know, and you see what fruit is being produced in their life. Now, here's the question. What is the fruit that we look at to cast our judgment? Is it church attendance? Is it how much they give, you know, to the local this or that? Is it their many acts of service? Is it, you know, like we, we, you could come up with a whole long list of things that the rules that we put in place to determine that's a good person, they're bad people, that sort of thing. So what fruit do you look at? Well, I think you turn to Galatians chapter 5. Galatians chapter 5, you ruined it. That's okay, no problem. Uh, Galatians 5, starting in verse 22. Well, maybe we'll go back just even a little bit earlier. In verse 16. Galatians 5, 16, it says, But I say to you, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you're led by the Spirit, you're not under the law. Now, the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual morality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warned you as I warned you before that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now, Jim, just to go back to a point that you made, or Mark or somebody, you know, this idea, if, if I was talking with this someone, and I searched my heart, and I made sure I had no logs coming out of my eyes, and I came to a scripture, or I came into contact with a person that was, you know, struggling with these sorts of things, and I pointed out in the Word of God, this is what it said, when you come to verse 21, the end there, they're pretty sobering words. Because it says, those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now, that person may not believe that, but they can't deny that that's what it says. And so, this is what it says here, and that's why I'm, I'm talking to you. That's why I'm sharing this with you. I'm concerned for you. So, that's the works of the flesh. Notice verse 22, it says, but the fruit of the Spirit. So, you judge a tree by its fruit, the fruit of the Spirit. And I think it's very important that these two are juxtaposed. Because it's talking about the works of the flesh, you would almost expect it to say, and the works of the spirit, you know, that we create in our life or something like that. But it goes with a different choice of words. It goes with fruit. 
And how does a tree go about, or how is fruit grown? Just by being tapped into that tree, right? We're just tapped into the vine, the life source. And we know that that life source, John chapter 15 tells us, is the Spirit himself, or the Lord Jesus. You tapped into the Lord Jesus there. But notice it says, the fruit of the Spirit is love. It's joy. It's peace. It's patience. It's kindness. It's goodness. It's faithfulness. It's gentleness. And it's self-control. So that's the fruit. That's what you want to be looking for in a person's life here. Uh, or even more, maybe more significantly, even in your own life. Now, some days I'm not so patient. All of them? Is that what you said? Oh, I thought you meant me. Thanks a lot, Baron. You know, some days I'm not so patient. Or maybe I'm not so kind. Um, that doesn't mean I've lost my salvation. It means I've drifted from the Lord, and I'm no longer tapped in. I'm like a branch that has fallen from the tree and is starting to wither up and dry up. And in our own lives, it's, you know, you walk away from a scenario and you're like, you know, I, I was kind of a jerk there. I was kind of mean today to the lady at Home Depot. Um, this is a true story. And so, um, you know, you walk away and you're like, you know, that wasn't really good. And so then you remind yourself, you go back to the Lord, you get it, you deal with it, and you uh, make sure you tap back in. All right? So just be careful that your judgment is not based on the wrong fruit. We want to make sure that it's the right fruit that we're looking for. Now, as we move on to verse 46, this is still back in Luke chapter 6. He says, now remember, he's talking to disciples, would-be disciples. You sure you want to follow me? He says, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? (coughs) Everyone who comes to me, (coughs) excuse me, and hears my word and does them, I'll show you what he is like. He is like a man building a house who dug deep and laid the foundation on the rock. And when a flood arose, the stream broke against the house, and it could not shake it because it had been well built. But the one who hears and does not do them is like a man who built a house on the ground without a foundation. And when the stream broke against it, it immediately, immediately it fell, and the ruin of that house was great. I think the, there's a few different ideas in this particular section. One is uh, this idea of what's, what is your profession of faith built upon? You say, Lord, Lord, but you don't do what I'm asking you to do. You know, so you have these words that sound great. You have a house that looks great, but it's got no root. It's got no, well, that's a wrong analogy. It's got no foundation there to it. It's just sort of surfacy here. So notice as Jesus is saying in verse 47, if you hear my words and do them, you're like a man who built a house with a nice, deep, secure foundation. You've built your life upon the right things. Notice Jesus asked the question, he says, what do you call, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I told you? I've, I've circled the word in my Bible, why? Because I think what Jesus is saying there is, you know, it doesn't make any sense for you to call me Lord, Master, and not do what I ask you to do. That doesn't make any sense. And the reason why I circled the word why is because I think it's a good question to ask ourselves. So why am I calling him Lord, but something else is more important to me that I'm allowing to be my Master in this particular instance? And so I think in asking that question... It brings us to this place of introspection where we are saying, you know what, this is more important than him to me. And then 
as we kind of pull back and look at that, we can look and say, no, it's not. Stop that, you know, and not do that anymore. Does that make sense where we're going here? So I like the question there, and I've circled in my Bible why. We, we need to determine why other things are more important to us in our relationship with the Lord that we aren't going to be obedient to Him. Now, oftentimes this little section of Scripture is used to kind of describe pick Jesus or don't pick Him. Become a believer or don't be a believer, that sort of thing. But this was being addressed really uh, to disciples, and I don't think it was, it's necessary. I think that applies, certainly. But I think it could also apply to people that are Christians. We are followers of Christ. Uh, we know and we have salvation. We've received instruction. And then what are we supposed to do? Obey, correct? Are there times in our lives, though, as believers, that we receive salvation, we get instruction, and we disobey? And sometimes that can go on for a real long period of time, and we can begin to build a whole house without the secure foundation of obedience to what the Lord might say. So I'd encourage us, this isn't just, well, I already did obey. I became a believer. I think it's a continual thing where God wants us uh, to continue to respond to what he's directing in our lives. Okay? Can I? Yes? Absolutely. So the motivation. So if you say why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I say, then that calls, calls into question the motivation. Mm. That's right. I read this uh, that I want to read to you. This was in a commentary that uh, John Corson um, wrote, and what he did was he he took all these things from Jesus's sermon on the plain. And he worked them into a prayer, a prayer that we would pray for ourselves um, about our relationship with the Lord. All right, so I was going to read it to you. You can just kind of take a moment and think about it, and then we'll move on to chapter 7. It says, The standards, Lord, of your kingdom, of giving, blessing, forgiving, they're qualities I lack in and of myself. Therefore, I need forgiveness, and I embrace you tonight as my Savior. I bask, Lord, in your grace. I plead your blood. I invite you to come into my heart again, Lord, in a fresh way, and in so doing to allow my life to more completely display these qualities. Strip me, Lord, from hypocrisy. Take from me, Lord, attitudes of judgment or condemnation. Keep me, Lord, from being one who hears the word but doesn't build my life thereon. I pray that my life might truly be built upon the rock, that as the storms come, I might stand in that day. And so, by the Spirit, in the Spirit, I absorb these teachings, this message, and I pray that I might do unto others as, that I, as I would that they would do unto me. Make me like you, Jesus. Allow me to be one who is more concerned about compassion than tradition. Allow me to be one who responds to your commandments rather than argue why they can't be done. I pause in your presence asking you to do your work in my life. Set me free, Lord to be a liberator and a lover of others as I look to and love you. Isn't that nice? I like how it just sort of ties all that up and uh, makes sense of what it is that Jesus was calling these disciples to. All right, so let's move on to chapter 7 because I think chapter 6 was a chapter about teaching. Chapter 7 now is, we're going to have a quiz on these things. You know, Jesus and the disciples there. And he's going to take them on the road to apply the things that they've been learning. So in this chapter, 
Jesus is going to deal with four main characters, uh, and there's a few other people in each of those stories as well. Uh, in chapter, or excuse me, in verses 1 through 10, uh, the focus of that is the centurion uh, in particular, who has a servant that's sick. So we'll look at that when we get there. In chapter, starting in verse 11, uh, there's a widow whose son, her only son, has passed. Uh, and Jesus is going to go and minister there. In chapter eight, starting in verse 18, uh, the person that's being ministered to is John the Baptist. And we'll talk about that, and certainly his disciples, as they're observing these things. And then when we, if we get tonight to verse 36, uh, it has to do with a Pharisee. I think that's the person that is being taught. Um, but it also involves a prostitute in the story as well. Um, so let's, uh, let's go ahead and start looking at these, see where it takes us. Verse 1. Well, after he had finished all of his sayings in the hearing of the people, he entered Capernaum. Now a centurion had a servant who was sick at the point of death, who was highly valued by him. And when the centurion heard about Jesus, he sent to him elders of the Jews, asking him to come and heal his servant. And when they, they came to Jesus, they pleaded with him earnestly, saying that, that the centurion, it says, he is worthy to have you do this for him, for he loves our nation, and he is the one who built us our synagogue. And Jesus went with them. And when he was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends, saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself. I'm not, I'm not worthy to have you come under my roof. Therefore I did not presume to come to you, but say the word, and let my servant be healed. For I too am a man set under authority, with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. And when Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him. And turning to the crowd that followed him, said, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. And when those who had been sent returned to the house, they found that the servant was well. The centurion servant. Now, a centurion was a Roman soldier. He was a commander of a hundred men under him, centurion. Uh, You see, this particular fellow lived in the northern town, really, not city, but a town on the coast of the Galilee called Capernaum. Um, You can see he was a good guy, it seems. Uh, The people of the community liked him. Oftentimes, centurions weren't really liked, um, you know, because of the the enemy uh, in some respects that represent the Roman government. Uh, But every time that we see an example of a centurion in the scripture, uh, it's favorable. There's four different times in the Gospels of centurions that are pictured. It's always favorable. Um, Here, this guy in particular is uh, really seen to be a good guy. It says that he built a synagogue for uh, the Jewish citizens. Uh, If you go on our trip to Israel, and those who did, we went into that synagogue. You remember we went there? You did? That was the house... Yeah, it was, I think they said it wasn't Well, no, it was built on like four or five times, and you could see the stone structure. If you look really close at the bottom, you could see. There you go, something <laughs> like that. You know, but where that area was, uh, the synagogue, and they just kept building higher and higher. Eventually it became a church and different things like that. Um, so this guy's a, a relatively good fella. Don't misread where it says he sent his the servants to Jesus. You might think that is sort of like, Aaron boy, go run me an errand and go find this Jesus fella. 
Uh, but that's not his motivation. His motivation, we see in the, the passage there, is he really didn't feel worthy to go to Jesus. And so he sent these other Jewish guys to go and to talk to Jesus there. Um, you also notice that he, he had a servant that he highly valued. Typically, they didn't highly value their servants. You know, this one passes on, he dies, or whatever, he's just get a new one, that kind of thing. But this guy seems to be cut from a different cloth. Uh, so he's a good guy, this particular centurion. We read the same story in the book of Matthew, chapter 8. Now there, in Matthew, uh, it seems as if it's contradictory. I don't think it is, but it seems to be, because in there, the centurion eventually makes his way to Jesus. I would suggest to you that between verses 9 and 10 is that part of the story, that we don't necessarily have it, and then Luke in verse 10 just sort of cuts to the chase and describes how the fella had been healed. So I I do think that those two stories can actually work together with one another and that they don't contradict one another. But let's take a look at the one that we have here in Luke. Again, working our way through, starting at verse 13, it said, when the centurion heard about, verse 3 I should say, when the centurion heard about Jesus, he sent to him elders of the Jews asking him to come and heal them. Now notice what they say. They come to Jesus these are Jewish leaders, uh, people, elders and so on, uh, rabbi-type people or people that are really ensconced in the faith. And it says, when they came to Jesus, they pleaded with him earnestly, saying, he is worthy. Another way you could say that is, he deserves this. He's earned this, Lord. He's been good. He's been a good guy. You owe him. And remember, that's how many Jews approach their faith. That we do these things and God owes us. Or how many people today approach their faith. I lived a good life. I certainly did more good than bad. So I deserve to get into heaven here. But this guy, he had a right understanding of faith. He was a good guy. And there's nothing wrong with being a good guy. We should all be good guys. All right? Or gals here. But notice what he says is, he doesn't compare himself with others. What these Jewish leaders were doing was comparing him as a centurion with other centurions. But he doesn't compare himself with others, he compares himself with God. And his response then, in that comparison, can be found in verse 6 where he says, Jesus went with them, and when he was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends saying, Do not trouble yourself, I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. He had a right understanding of who he was and his own righteousness, if you will, and that is that he was not worthy. God and of this of this prophet guy that is out there, maybe not fully knowing who Jesus is yet. Yes, ma'am. Um, I've been to a couple, number of Roman Catholic church services. This is part of the service. Lord, I am not worthy to you to come under my roof. Just say the words of my son. Yeah, I remember that. I, I grew up Catholic. I remember that. Yeah. Yeah, they work it in there, don't they? Mm-hmm. Right before communion. Yeah, that's right. You grew up Catholic too? Yes. All right, so then he says, um, just say the word. I didn't want to presume to have you come to my house and all that. We saw that in verse 7. And as move on to verse 9. He says, when Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him. Now, what must it take for God to marvel at something, you know? Um, so the Lord here, he marvels at him. He's impressed with him. We see, I think if I remember correctly, three times it says that Jesus marveled. Twice, it's in a positive sense, like you did something good, he liked it, and he marveled. Once, it's in a negative sense. 
It's this centurion, that's positive. A Syrophoenician woman, we read about that in the Gospels, that's positive. She's another Gentile woman. And then he marvels at the unbelief of the Jews in another place. And so three different times that he's marveling here, in this rare occurrence, he's marveling at this man's faith. Now, what was it about this man's faith which caused Jesus to marvel? A couple things I see, maybe you see some other, you can, you can join in. Uh, one is that this man recognized authority. He submitted himself to it. The other has to do with his humility. And then the other is he recognized the ability of Jesus. He didn't even have to just come there. He could just simply say a word and the guy uh, would be healed. And those things really impressed him and he moved to action on that by sending people to go find Jesus and so on. So Jesus is marveling at this guy's faith and he doesn't do that a lot. So that is something that certainly we want to pay attention to. Does anybody have any thoughts on that? Anything you want to share? General idea, right? Okay. So that's the first guy. Now the next one here, verse 11, it says soon afterward, some Bible versions say the next day, um, either way, it's very soon afterward, he went to a town that was called Nain. Now Nain was about 25 miles away. Um, if, if you think of the Sea of Galilee as the face of a clock, Capernaum might be around 1. Uh, this is somewhere around 11.30, if you will, between 11 and 12. Uh, it's about 25 miles away. Uh, and it says, he went to this town, and his disciples and a great crowd went with him. So now everybody's gathering, right? As he drew near to the gate of the town, behold, a man who had died was being carried out. So it's a funeral procession. The only son of his mother, and she was a widow, and a considerable crowd from the town was with her. So this widow, obviously that means she lost her husband, who was... Uh, caring for her, providing for her as a husband would in that day in particular. And now she's lost her only son, whose responsibility it would have been to care for her and to provide for her. So here is a woman that is now in a really rough place, a bad place, um, and it's going to only get worse in many respects as far as finances and, and things like that are concerned. Large crowd has gathered. Verse 13 says, Now when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her, and he said to her, Do not weep. It's easy to say, I guess. Then he came up and he touched the buyer and the bearers stood still. So he went and he got right up to the casket, if you will. And he said, young man, I say to you, arise. Could you possibly imagine? You know, um, And the dead man sat up. Could you possibly imagine that? And began to speak. And Jesus gave him to his mother. And fear seized them all and they glorified God, saying... A great prophet has arisen among us, and God has visited his people. And this report about him spread through the whole of Judea and all the surrounding country. Now, a couple things about this that are significant. Where they're saying a great prophet has arisen among us and God has visited his people. They're not necessarily declaring that Jesus is God there. What they're, what they're saying is that God's power has been present here. In, in this great prophet that is in front of us. So they don't yet, they're not quite committing to who Jesus is just yet, but they certainly know something is going on here. It says great fear overcame them. Not fear so much run away in horror, just sort of what is going on here? I don't understand this. Whoa, you know, back up a little bit. Yeah, great prophets, right? So he fits right into that. Um, 
What what impacts me about this story, obviously a man is raised from the dead, uh, but where it says in verse 13, remember one of the things, one of Luke's purposes is to show the humanity of Jesus, fully God, fully man. Uh, and notice it says that he had compassion on her. That word compassion, the idea is her pain became his pain. Um, that's not my natural inclination. You know, I'm sorry, buddy. And I move on. I got my own problems I got to deal with here. When I'm in a right place with the Lord, I find I'm a lot more sensitive about other people and their, quote-unquote, their pain, whether it be physical or internal, whatever it may be. And so Jesus is here, moved with compassion. His, her pain becomes his pain. And so he does something about it. Did other people die in Jesus' day? Yeah. Did other funeral processions go by? And Jesus sort of stood silently and, you know, whatever you do or whatever, sure. But for whatever reason, well, we know the reason, is because he was moved with compassion. He stepped out in this particular instance here, and he raised the man back to life and gave him back to his mother. Um, so Jesus raises uh, this young man and gives him back to his mom. And she was probably greatly blessed, I'm sure. Now let's move on to verse 18. This involves John the Baptist. I think this will be our last story for the evening. The disciples of John reported all these things to him, and John, calling two of his disciples to him, sent them to the Lord, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? And when the man had come, when the men had come to him, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? In that hour, he had healed many people of diseases and plagues and evil spirits, and on many who were blind he bestowed sight. And so he answered them, Go and tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight. Uh, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, the poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Now, John here, many of us know, but it doesn't tell us right here, so it's important for us to look in other places. Uh, in Luke chapter 3, just a couple chapters earlier, verse 20. In Luke chapter 3, verse 20, in a passage of scripture that is about John the Baptist, Luke gives us a note, which is a year and a half into the future. It's not prophetic or anything, because he's writing you know, a history. Uh, but he, he gives a little side note, in which he says in verse 20, uh, about Herod, and added this to all of them, that he locked up John in prison. So, 18 months after Luke chapter 3 is where we are now, John is actually in prison. The reason he's in prison, we read about in Matthew chapter 14. Because John, as this prophet, had the nerve to confront Herod of his sin. And tell him you know, that what he was doing was wrong. And Herod said, you don't tell me that. Put him in prison. Eventually, uh, Herod would have John the Baptist's head cut off. Uh, and so John would be executed while he is in prison there. He probably said that, judge not lest you be judged. It's going to be in a book someday, you know, something like that. So, John's in prison, right? Keep that in context. Going back to verse 18, it says, Now the disciples of John reported all these things to him. All what things? All the things we've been reading. Things like, sick have been healed. That this dead guy was just raised. It was remarkable. You should have seen it, John. You would have loved it. That the lame are made well. 
that people who had withered hands were healed, that people that couldn't walk. And remember that guy, John, you've been up to Jerusalem. Remember that guy that sat there for 38 years? You know, all these stories of things that Jesus was doing, they now began to tell John. And here's John sitting in jail. He's like, all right, if he can raise people from the dead and grow limbs back and heal lepers and can't he just like slip the key to me at night so I can get out of here or something like that remember this for a second this is in uh, where was it Luke chapter 4 I forgot my glasses I just realized Luke chapter 4 verse 18 well verse 16 remember Jesus uh, this is early on in his ministry uh, Jesus goes to the synagogue of his town, the town of Nazareth, and as was his custom, uh, he went to the synagogue on Sabbath day, and he stood to read, that's verse 16, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him, and he unrolled the scroll, and he found the place where it was written, and these are the words he read. This is from Isaiah 61. It says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives recovery of sight to the blind, and to set at liberty those who are oppressed, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Remember, we said that that was a messianic psalm. Actually, that psalm in Isaiah 61 continues to go on. But right where we left off, as Baron reminded me, we left off at a comma. That comma is a 2,000-year period of history. Because the beginning of that, uh, I think I just said psalm, but the beginning of that prophecy there in Isaiah speaks of Jesus' first coming. After that comma, clearly there's a change. It speaks of his second coming. So the comma is the church age that we've been living in here. But notice some of the things that it says. Proclaim good news to the poor, the brokenhearted. Uh, Set at liberty the captives. Recovery of sight to the blind and the oppressed. All these things that Jesus was doing. All these things that in John uh, 7.18, excuse me, Luke 7.18 that the disciples would have been reporting to John. John, you you can't imagine the things that are going on here. All these things. Now, I wonder if John said, read for me that that prophecy from Isaiah. And he says, well, he's going to come and heal the poor, and he's going to set the captives free, the liberty of the captives. And they keep reading, no, no, wait a minute, go back and read that part again. And then John looks around, he's like, you know, he's not setting me free. What is going on, and why am I sitting here? And so, now I'm reading a little bit into John's motives here, but it seems to me that we have in this section of Scripture that John is beginning, I don't want to say doubt in the sense of, like, teetering over the edge where I don't believe anymore, but it seems like he's having a little bit of a crisis of faith here. Like, is he really the one? You know, how long is he going to keep me here? When am I going to be set free? Remember, a lot of the people of that day had a sense that Jesus was going to take over the world and become a ruling empire and that would have certainly made its way to John whether he really held to that or not but he certainly didn't think he should be imprisoned any longer if Jesus could do all these things why isn't he setting him free so notice he then poses the question in 19 he says are you the one who is to come or shall we look for another he says to go ask and so they do and they go and they find Jesus but notice when they get to Jesus verse 21 Jesus in the midst of healing many people of diseases and plagues and evil spirits. Many that are blind, he's bestowing sight. He's in the midst of working. So it's almost like, you guys hang out over there, I'll be right with you. And I think that's a teaching lesson. So they're observing and they're seeing all these things still. 
And then, verse 22, so then he said, all right, I heard your question. Go tell John the things that you just saw. Go explain that to him. Tell him what you've seen. Tell him what you've heard. Blind receiving sight, lame walking, lepers cleansed, deaf hearing, dead being raised to life, the poor having good news preached to them. Go preach, go tell John all of those things. And also tell him, blessed is the one who is not offended by me. And so then verse 24, So when John's messengers had gone, Jesus then began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who are dressed in splendid clothing and live in luxury, they're in king's courts. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes. I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. Continues, I tell you the truth. I tell you, among those born of women, none is greater than John. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. And when all the people heard this, and the tax collectors too, they declared God just, having been baptized with the baptism of John. But the Pharisees and lawyers rejected the purpose of God for themselves, not having been baptized by John. And then we'll stop there for a second. So, we don't have really the report here, at least not in Luke, of how John responded to these things. Oh, got it, thanks. You know, it was just a, a momentary lapse here. But we, we assume that that is uh, the way things went, at least as far as Luke is concerned. I don't remember Matthew right now off the top of my head. Um, but Jesus then commends John publicly here um, to the others. And I don't think he's buttering anybody up. I, I think he really means these things that he's about to say. So here's a guy that is a great follower of God who's struggling, it seems, with some doubts. And Jesus uh, is very comfortable with people coming in sincerity and saying, Lord, I don't get it. I understand. You know, so here's John's suffering. Have you ever been in a place of suffering and has that ever caused you to struggle a little bit in your faith and to doubt? And what do you do with that? Can you bring that to the Lord? Yes, I think we can bring it to the Lord. Open for the Lord to teach us through those things. Open for the Lord to say, you know what? Yeah, I'm doing all these things and you're still going to remain in prison. What if, what if this happened? What if Jesus said, you know what? That is true. All right, new plan. John, we'll let him out of prison. I'll go on my way. I'll become the ruler of Rome. John can be my right-hand man, all these sorts of things, and we'll, we'll rule and reign for the next 70 years until we die, kind of thing. John would have probably said, great, love it. But in just a few short, whatever, days, weeks, months, he's going to have his head cut off, and where's he going to be? He's going to be in glory. Right? He's, going to be, well, he's going to end up in glory shortly thereafter, and he's going to say, don't give me that plan A. I don't want that other plan at all. This is much, much better. So the Lord is sovereign. The Lord knows. Well, he also would, Jesus wouldn't be the child of God. Exactly. Yeah, and that's the point that I'm making. Uh, I didn't say it as well as you did, but exactly. So Jesus, the Lord knows, and he just sort of reminds John, uh, and John is more than likely encouraged in that and says, okay, sorry about that, just a bad moment there. I'm good now. And Jesus says all this uh, stuff about him you see there. He said, look, was John... Uh, some wimpy little fella out in the, the woods, a reed shaken by the wind? No. You know, was John some rich guy who had it all made for him? Nope, wasn't that either. What was he? He was a prophet. 
And what kind of a prophet was he? He was a darn good prophet. I don't think Jesus said darn. But he was a very, very good prophet, I tell you. He says, more than that, this is my messenger. Before your face who I will prepare your way before you. That's from Malachi chapter 3, 1. You can look at it. Um, there's some other interesting things to that, but for time we'll, we'll move on from there. You can look at it a little closely. I think you'll be impressed. Verse 28 says, I tell you, among those born of women, none is greater than John. Now, this is the second greatest person who's ever lived. Is that what Jesus is saying? Jesus, we all know he's number one. Um, yeah. Now, why? What about John? He was a hairy dude with, he ate like, cro- what do he eat? Locust, locust and honey? Like, he seemed like a weird dude, if you ask me, you know, that kind of thing. But he's the greatest of the prophets, really just for one reason. Because all of the prophets look sort of to the heavens, if you will, into their mind's eye, and said what they saw. John looked at what he saw and pointed to what he saw. That's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Don't follow him or go follow that guy over there. So that's what's meant by when it says he's the greatest of the prophets, because he saw, if you will, the fulfillment of his prophecies, unlike any of the other prophets that had come before him. But notice what Jesus also said, yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. Well, I'm in the kingdom of God. You are, if you're a follower of Christ, you're a believer. That means you're greater than John the Baptist. Now, I don't know if I really believe that from the sense of great people of faith. You know, there's Moses and Abraham and uh, Billy Graham and John the Baptist. I don't think I'm in that list there. So what's going on here? What's saying? Well, I think what's, what's happening here is, this. it's an idea. Try to picture it this way. John the Baptist worked for the king. I'm a son of the king. That make sense? And you're a daughter of the king. And so that's why we're the least in the kingdom of God, but we're greater than John the Baptist. We're not his employees, if you will. We're his children. We're his friends, he says, in another place there. Okay? Now, then he goes on, he talks a little bit about the ministry of John and the tax collectors. They loved it. The sinners, they loved it. And they went out, and they, if you will, they, they declared, you know what, God, you're absolutely right. We do need to repent. Unfortunately, the Pharisees and the lawyers, now this isn't lawyers like, you know, uh, people that fight in a court case or whatever. These are people of the law, the Old Testament. And so the Pharisees and the lawyers, they rejected the purpose of God for themselves. They were too righteous to receive from the Lord. Remember we said earlier uh, that the sick don't need a physician? Yeah, we talked about that. I was wondering, did we talk about it? Yeah, we did, because i got to go to the doctor. Uh, the sick don't need a physician because they, they feel like they're well, they're healthy. I, I mean, everything's good. I don't need it. And these righteous folks, they, didn't, they rejected the purpose of God for themselves. Notice what he says in verse 31. To what then shall I compare the people of this generation? What are they like? Referring to these Pharisees. They're like children sitting in the marketplace, calling to one another. We played the flute for you, and you did not dance. We sang a dirge, that would be like a sad song, and you didn't mourn. What do you want? John the Baptist, he came eating no bread, drinking no wine, and you say he's demon-possessed. The Son of Man, that's a reference to Jesus, he's come eating and drinking, and you call him a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. You know, So these Pharisees, they, they basically they wanted what they wanted, their way and their way only. They weren't flexible to receive from the Lord and thus they were never going to learn anything from the Lord. Amen? 
All right, so Jesus is teaching his disciples a lot of things. This is sort of the, let's take it on the road and, and put it practical. We're going to have to come back to another Pharisee in verse 36 and see uh, his life. He goes so far as to invite Jesus to his house, uh, which you might think, all right, well, maybe here's a guy who wants to learn. But as you can see some things, it doesn't seem like he's... It almost seemed like, oh, i got to invite this important guy back to my house. So we'll talk about that when we come to it next time. Uh, hopefully we'll taught you some things this morning or this evening about your faith and how to apply it to your walk, right? You want to pray? Let's pray. Father, we, uh, we thank you so much for uh, the word. Lord, we thank you. Just very practical things. You want to be my disciple? These are some things that uh, I'm about. I'm about not being a hypocrite. I'm, not, I'm about not judging other people's motives and condemning them. Lord, I'm about having a heart that is soft. I'm about searching out our own hearts. Lord, all these things that we looked at tonight, Lord, you know where we are, you know which things resonated in our hearts, and I just pray that your Spirit would continue to teach us and guide us and direct us through uh, the rest of this week and into the weekend, Lord. Father, we love you and we're so grateful that uh, you call us your own. We're not employees of the king, but we're your children. And Lord, uh, that is just a glorious, amazing uh, truth. And we love you, Lord Jesus. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.